Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Li Pingchen, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Andrew Morris about his new book, Defectors from the PRC to Taiwan, 1960-1989, The Anti-Communist Righteous Warriors. Defections from the People's Republic of China were an important part of the narrative of the Republic of China in Taiwan during the Cold War. But their stories have previously barely been told, less still examined in English. During the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, the ROC government paid much special attention to these anti-communist heroes. Their choices to leave behind the turmoil of the PRC were a propaganda coup for the nationalist one-party state in Taiwan, proving the superiority of the so-called free China that it had created there. Morris looked at the stories behind these headlines, what the defectors understood about the ROC before they arrived, and how they dealt with the reality of their post-defection lives in Taiwan. He also looks at how these dramatic individual stories of migration were understood to prove essential differences between the two regimes, while at the same time showing important continuities between the two Chinese states. This book is a valuable resource for students and scholars of 20th century China, Taiwan, and of Cold War and its impact in Asia. This book was published by Routledge in 2022. So that's about the book. And Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So, uh, Andrew, I was wondering whether um, you can uh, introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your research interest as well. Sure, yes. Um, my PhD is in modern Chinese history, so I'll go back a couple decades here. And at some point, I became uh, involved in studying sport in, in modern Chinese culture. And so first writing a book about sport, physical culture in the early, in the late Qing, in the, the Republican period. And then from there, actually um, doing this, a similar th- project in Taiwan and studying the, the history of Taiwanese baseball and looking at that from Japanese colonial period through the Republican period on Taiwan until, until you know, uh, pretty recent past. Um, and so I've been working on Taiwan actually for most of uh, you know, the last couple of decades. And I was starting to feel like I wanted to do something to, to bridge those two, uh, those two areas again. Again, I'd started off studying modern China, gotten more involved studying, studying Taiwanese history and felt like it was 
it was time to try to think about them both together in some way. And that was the kind of early origin of, of this study. Yeah, and then you mentioned this kind of like the connection between the two sides, this kind of cross strait. But how did you uh, start this project specifically on the defectors? Um, I think when you talk about the the connections, I'm I'm very interested in where the connections are and obviously where they aren't. Um, and so, taking any real time to study Taiwanese history gives you a pretty clear sense of. Um, of that question, that, that there are these really deep connections in certain ways, and then there are also these very obvious disconnects um, in the histories of, of the mainland and of Taiwan, or, or in the recent period, PRC and Taiwan. Um, and so I mentioned that I had the sense that I wanted to try to do something to put these histories together in, in some meaningful way. And there's also another real specific origin of this study um, which is this event that takes place in 2001. Um, and it, there's a, a couple criminals who are put to death um, for their part in a, in a kidnap and ransom and murder crime that took place in 1991. And so this ends up being, I, I suppose, the ultimate spoiler of, of this study. But I, I think I should mention it because it is the thing that really put this in my mind in terms of... Um, uh, making this an interesting topic. And that's because these two individuals that I mentioned who were put to death by the ROC government had been two of these very celebrated defectors in 1983 and 1984. And so when this happened in 2001 and these, these former heroes, um, again, to use this term, anti-communist righteous warriors, are put to death for their part in this really uh, gruesome murder, uh, it really stood out to me as this, it made me realize that this topic probably had so much more than I had ever really thought about. And I'd, I'd been acquainted with the histories of these defectors, but only in a pretty superficial way. And my, my sense in talking to people about them just very generally in the 90s was that this was already seen as this very antiquated um very strange part of, of Taiwan's history, um, even though it went on through even to 1989. Um, and so I, I had in my head that there was this history of these defectors who were celebrated and became these great stars in, in ROC culture, but I hadn't really taken it seriously. And so again, this, this event in 2001 made me think that there was probably uh, way more to look into. And, and thankfully, I was right about that. Thank you, Andrew, for sharing the uh, inspiration and also this um, in the uh, 2000s, this uh, former superstar anti-communist righteous hero and then become the convicted murderer and then put uh, to death. So with this, uh, of course, we will unpack what happened between um, these different years and how they, you know, from a hero to a convicted uh, murderer. But uh, to first to think about the historical context first, we mentioned about the connection, different uh, transition in the cross-strait uh, relation. And then one of them is definitely the confrontation as well. So I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit about the political situation in and between the uh, PRC and Taiwan, especially during the 60s and 80s, where you focus 
to study the uh, defectors. When the first of these defections took place that I cover in 1960, the ROC government of the Republic of China government had been in Taiwan for about 11 years. They had governed the mainland since from 1912 through 1949 when they were expelled by the victorious communists. But since 1949, there had been this 11-year period where they had never stopped wanting to get back to China. And that was a very important thing for President Chiang Kai-shek to get back to the mainland that his party and his government had governed, and for the roughly million mainlanders who had accompanied his government to Taiwan. Um, most of them, when they went to Taiwan, thought it would be for a short time. But by 1960, there were a million of these people that we'll be referring to as mainlanders, or Weishengren, in Taiwan, who had been there for 11 years, uh, much longer than they'd ever counted on, and separated uh, in many, many, in most cases, from their families on the mainland. And so one of the things that we'll be talking about throughout this discussion is the legitimacy of the KMT party state and the attempt to get back to China, reconquer the mainland, and so that relates to the what you asked, which is the larger political situation and this great standoff and a part of the Cold War that we don't usually think about, I think, in the West. Um, but this moment where there were two competing Chinese regimes, the People's Republic of China, ruled by the communists, and the Republic of China, like I said, ruled by the you know, the, the Nationalist Party. And so a lot of uh, what we'll be talking about of these defectors had to do with um, this competition um, and this attempt on the ROC side, on the Taiwan side, to prove that this was the superior Chinese government and that these defectors who were uh, putting themselves in great danger and, in fact, putting their families in probably even more danger, um, the fact that they were taking the step to escape the mainland to get to Taiwan was meant to mean a lot about the superiority of a free China, as the ROC called itself. Yeah, and then you definitely highlight one of the very important uh, contests is this is uh, cross-strait antagonism, but also in a Cold War uh, structure as well. The competing uh, Chinese uh, regimes, and they are self-claimed to be the orthodox uh, Chinese representatives in UN and also different uh, political, international political situation as well. So uh, you uh, mentioned about the Republic of China from the mainland to Taiwan. And then uh, I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about the People's Republic of China, especially in the 60s and 80s, after they take over of the territory, the mainland territory from 1949? Because you mentioned many of the defectors, they were escaped. Uh, escaping. So what's the situation in 60s and 80s in the People's Republic of China that some of the defectors trying to escape from? Many of them, um, when they get to Taiwan, they are asked to weigh in on the conditions in China. And they, they end up serving as these very, very important witnesses to what's really happening in communist China. And so your question is actually getting to a really important part of, of who these defectors um, were meant to be and their, their significance once they got to Taiwan. Um, 
so when the story starts again in 1960, we're still in the incredible famine um, that was part of the Great Leap Forward. And what's what's uh, incredibly to think about happening in the 20th century, but the worst famine in the history of of humanity. And so with these, the, this first batch of of defectors are are leaving a China that's um, that's in the midst the midst of that, uh, you know, very much man made. Uh, great leap forward famine. Um, most historians trace that through to 1961 or 62, um, but that's followed relatively quickly, relatively you know, soon after by the Cultural Revolution. And so there's another batch of defectors that will mainly will be coming in the 70s and 80s, and they will all cite the Cultural Revolution as this really important moment where they lost their faith in the communist government. Uh, they'll cite very specific and very horrible examples of what happened to their parents, to their grandparents. Um, and they'll be asked once they get to Taiwan um, to, again, to describe this in real close detail, mainly for the purposes of showing the, this essential difference between a Taiwan that is supposedly democratic it's not <laughs> in the 70s and 80s by, by really any stretch of the imagination until we get into the mid to late 80s. Um, but that is at least the language that's being used in Taiwan. Um, and again, as I said, these defectors are, are being asked to share these very painful memories and experiences in order to show what's, what's always been wrong with the communist government what was always wrong with Maoist rule, and therefore what was always more appropriate about nationalist rule under Chiang Kai-shek, under his son, under Sun Yat-sen's uh, three principles of the people. Yeah, and especially you mentioned that how their personal experience and family stories in People's Republic China after the defection were turned into or were packaged into this public testimony to sort of um, um, strengthen this imagination or this profile of the nationalist regime as a quote-unquote uh, free uh, China regime as well. So for this uh, propaganda coup and also for this kind of packaging of the their testimony, their experiences, I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit about um, uh, the defectors, and then how do they defect to Taiwan? And then um, any other things that you would like us to know about the defectors? Well, um, the group that I cover is mainly the group of military pilots that did that, um, and one group of hijackers that were able to hijack um, a civil aircraft in 1983. There was a, a much larger group of these defectors um, who somehow or other made it from the PRC to Taiwan. But I ended up focusing on these pilots because their experiences are are really the ones that are remembered the most, that were celebrated the most, that are the most dramatic, and that really seemed to excite the population of Taiwan and probably more specifically the mainlander population of Taiwan. And there was something about being able to do this in such a flash, being able to get in your plane, make up your mind, I'm not going to serve 
the the, the communist bandits, as again the, the the nationals always refer to the communist party. I'm not going to serve these puppets of the Soviets who are destroying Chinese culture and destroying um, traditional Chinese ideas and so on and so on. Again, I'm, I'm quoting the real um, orthodox nationalist way of, of discussing who these pilots were. Um, like I said, there were many, many more people who made it from the PRC to Taiwan indirectly. That that was usually through Hong Kong. That was usually just um, the many, many refugees who got to Hong Kong and were hoping to make it to nationalist rule Taiwan often had to stay in in Hong Kong for a long time while they were cleared. Um, I mean, one one really interesting thing about this this question of welcoming defectors is the flip side, which is security. Um, and so, uh, one one very uh, common problem, I guess, is, is simply that there are all these people who are flooding into Hong Kong, trying to get out of China, hoping to make it to Taiwan. But the nationalist government in Taiwan can't trust that these aren't just a bunch of spies. Um, and so they're actually very careful and very slow in terms of letting those people from Hong Kong get to Taiwan, even though they talk a lot about welcoming these defectors and what it means for free China. There's also another group of people who would be like musicians or diplomats or authors who would be able to travel abroad and from some third country, they would try to make it to uh, you know, ROC embassy or something like that. Um, so the group of defectors that I cover are actually a very small number, um, but they're definitely the ones whose defections were the most visible, the most dramatic, and again, um, the idea that they could just make up their mind that that morning, get in their plane, um, veer away from their their flight path, and fly towards Taiwan it was a very romantic idea then, um, and seemed to really appeal to again mainly to that mainlander population, and it seemed to augur something about how easy it it could someday be for them to get back to China if they've been waiting for ten years. 20 years, um, you know, by the end of this period, almost 40 years, by the end of the period I study, to see their family, the idea that you could just do so in a snap um, seemed to deeply move people. And um, the government made a lot of use, again, out of these these pilots. Um, and it, it's simply just exciting that they would fly over in these jet fighters um, and land, and they would be welcomed by ROC Air Force personnel and carried on their shoulders and things like that. So it, um, it definitely made for a very exciting um, kind of political theater as well. Yeah, and then especially you mentioned this kind of political theater, this kind of spectacle of their arrival, and you mentioned this kind of um, being romanticized as well. And then in some way, it's also quote unquote useful for the nationalist narrative about the so-called free China, especially these pilots, their agency, their decision, their free will to defect from the People's Republic of China to the Republic of China at that time in Taiwan. So uh, this- Can I jump in for a second? Um, yes, I of course. I love that you said their, their free will, because um, I think that really is part of it. I think that's what makes it so powerful. And what also um, 
makes it historically so such a a curious kind of thing to look at, which is that you would have one person making this decision, and it would be seen to indicate the true desire or the true will of eight hundred million Chinese people, and that was always part of the discourse as well. Um, this is the leaf. This is the one leaf that tells you it's autumn, to to use that Chinese phrase. Um, but again, it, the, there's, I've always, I always thought that was a really important kind of historical question, which is, as, just as you said, that that will, the individual will that's shown in this decision, but then once you start thinking about it um, in any kind of historical or logical way, it obviously becomes much more maybe problematic, or at the very least, just interesting that... And like I said, they would always use that one person's decision to represent what everyone in China really wanted to do. Yeah, and then um, the the uh, the this decision or this um, uh, action to leave uh, the People's Republic of China is, of course. Um, have many dimension and also many layer to eventually make that decision and action. And whereas for the Nationalist Party, they sort of just have a, a official narrative and also the discourse about this is just anti-communist uh, action for this righteous warrior. And the reason why I mentioned this quote-unquote free will is in your book, you mentioned there's one defector that's actually reluctant. So I was wondering, can you tell us about that reluctant defector back in the 60s? Yes. Um, there are actually three people like this um, who are in a plane <laughs> um, when the pilot decides to make this, this defection. And so there are three cases um, of, of these military pilots I'm sorry, two cases of military pilots and one case um, of a actually just a kind of um, government pilot who make this choice when there's someone else in the plane. And e in each of those three cases, the other person didn't want to, or at least one of the other people didn't want to make this defection. So I think you might be talking about the first one in uh, 1961 um, when there's actually a flight uh, from northern China into South Korea. And so um, that's also a common part of these stories. That flying to Taiwan was an option for some pilots who were in southern China, but if you're in northern China, that's a very long way to go, um, especially when the Air Force starts limiting fuel, when they start worrying about defections and they start limiting the amount of fuel that's ever put into a single plane. So there are several of these that, that occur um, where pilots defect leaving North China and they fly to South Korea and then have to request asylum to Taiwan. Um, but the first one that you mentioned happens in 1961 where uh, this is a plane that's actually being used for agricultural purposes and uh, the, the pilot just decides to go for it and fly to South Korea without consulting um, his his crewmate and this is a really fascinating case uh, it's it's the first of these defections where the people make it to Taiwan alive um, 
the reason I put it that way is that the first affection that I cover happens in 1960, where the pilot does fly to Taiwan, but he crashes on the um, the beaches of, of northeast Taiwan and doesn't make it. Um, so the first successful example is actually a flight to Korea. And um, the unwilling defector was named Gao Yozong. And there's records that show up in the Ministry of, of Foreign Affairs archives where he's being held by the Korean government. And he is he's beside himself. He's furious. He's... Um, He's saying, I don't want to do this. I never wanted to defect. Just let me get back to China. Just put me in North Korea. And from there, I'll just make it back to China myself. Um, but obviously, that can't happen. These, these defectors are much too valuable in terms of the publicity that they're going to give. And so he's sent on to Taiwan. Um, and for 40 years, he... You know, in public, he's one of these celebrated defectors, but obviously he and this, you know, probably a pretty small group of people do understand that he never wanted to do this. Um, and I've always been interested in looking at the pictures. There's one of them uh, who was always so happy to have made this, and it's always so easy <laughs> to tell, maybe just because I know the story, but it's just so always so very easy to tell that one of these defectors just was not interested in doing this and really resented being put in this position. Um, they were taken to meet with Chiang Kai-shek when they got to Taiwan. This one, Gao, was searched, physically searched, to make sure he wasn't going to try to hurt Chiang. That's how little trust they had in him. Uh, they told him to not talk, lest he say something to offend President Chiang. He still did talk, <laughs> and he told him, I don't want to be in the Air Force, in the ROC. And so he ended up, um, I mean, another part that's interesting about this is that he, being, he ended up being put to use um, in what was uh, called uh, you know, psychological warfare. And he ended up winning awards by the early 80s for his many writings on um, how to reach the people of the mainland with ROC propaganda. So he eventually did settle into a career and was in fact celebrated for his um, contributions to the military. And I even make a case at the end of the book that he might be the one of these defectors that actually had the most military contribution. Um, I hope this isn't jumping too far ahead, but one of the things that you see about these pilots is that they're never allowed to fly again. Um, and the fact is very simple that they've already defected once. They've already shown their disloyalty once to the communist regime. And so once these people are in Taiwan for a while and perhaps start to miss their families and so on, the ROC Air Force also has no interest in letting them get back into a plane and have them perhaps uh, do the same thing back the other way. Um, and so most of the the pilots who defect end up only in these kind of ceremonial roles, and I, I think have very little they're ever able to contribute, and it does seem that they're pretty frustrated by that. Uh, so ironically, the first of these unwilling defectors, I think, probably makes the most um, contribution to the military in terms of bringing his knowledge of agriculture in northern China and um, people's experiences during the famine and so on. Yeah, and then especially you mentioned there are this um, two different sides of stories 
on the public side, the nationalist governments kind of celebrate and also reward them and uh, phrase them as the anti-communist righteous warrior. Whereas on the other side, the nationalist government seems to have little trust, if no trust at all, about them because they already defect one times. And there's also this uh, strong sense of suspicion of whether they are spy or whether they are sent by actually by uh, the communist state uh, to a nationalist uh, regime. So there's two different uh, sides. One is for publicity to celebrate and as the testimony for uh, uh, the superiority of uh, the nationalist regime. But at the same time, uh, the uh, defectors, they will also uh, have to encounter uh, in Taiwan. So uh, with that, and I was also wondering that uh, we are t- we're talking about this unwilling uh, defectors, and were there uh, female defectors as well, or are they primarily uh, male uh, members? In the group that I study, there was only one woman who's involved. And so part of this is determined um, by the fact of studying mainly these military pilots. And so I think that I think we just have to say that that determines most of um, these to have been male defectors. But in the group of hijackers that came in 1983 that I actually referenced earlier, one of them was a woman. Um, so her role in this history is pretty interesting, Gao Dongping. And so she's part of this 1983 hijacking in Shenyang, in northern China. Um, it's led by Zhuo Changren, who's this this very intelligent, very skilled, very charismatic uh, troublemaker is probably the best way to put it. Um, he had graduated from the Liaoning Province uh, Aeronautical School. But at some point, I think probably um, pretty soon after graduating, that, that's right, he'd gone to work for um, an electroplating company, I think, for the province, and from there had been involved in an automotive company that was run by the province. And from there, he became known as the car king for his um, ability and habit and hobby, I suppose, of stealing cars from the unit, taking them to southern China and selling them. And so he actually seems to have become this kind of well-known figure in the underworld, but also who had friends in the police department. He liked to go out and, and shoot target practice with, with police officers, and they welcomed him because, I guess, because of his access to these cars and stuff. Um, he was this really charismatic person who had put together this group of six um, that planned this hijacking. And some of them he found because they had. There were two of them in particular who were security guards at the local PE college, the physical education college, and they had access to pistols. And so he befriended them. And Gao Dongping was um, again the only woman in this group. Um, was also really fiery. Had very, um, very clear ideas about what was wrong with China in 1983 and the way that it, it restricted, the way that the government restricted people's freedoms. She's actually the one who smuggles the guns onto the plane for the hijacking. Um, When they do make it to Taiwan, I think her position is also interesting in the way that she's represented, um, usually in this really unflattering way to kind of represent what women from the PRC 
look like and dress like. I mean, it just seems um, it seems strange to, to talk about it in this way, but it is important to say that this was a way that Taiwan was um, that in in the culture and in the politics. It does seem to be the way that the, the media was making distinctions between free China, this developed China that. It, um, in Taiwan, I mean, that had this economic boom and mainland China. So one of the the easy ways I, I think that they saw of doing this was to show the way that she looked and dressed, um, perhaps compared to very cosmopolitan women in, in the Taiwan of the 1980s. Um, another part, another way that she had a very gendered role in the story is that she eventually married. Jewel, who had who had led the hijacking attempt, and they were they actually were married in a pretty big ceremony because the two of them were these great hijacking um, stars, these these righteous warriors. Um, they also went to jail together because uh, they were they were found guilty of bigamy. Jewel was married in China, and so when news of this wedding in Taiwan had made it back into the PRC. His wife, who was still his wife there in northern China, um, brought suit against him in the courts of the PRC. And in this very interesting way, the ROC government recognized that marriage under the PRC. And um, the two, Zhuo and Gao Dongping, the husband and wife, um, both had short prison sentences in around 1987. Thank you for sharing this uh, amazing um, stories about the female defectors, and especially thinking about you mentioned that they were actually later on uh, have to go to jail. Um, this kind of marriage, this uh, legal constitution, but the nationalist regime actually recognized that uh, from the uh, People's Republic of China. So I think this is very interesting in terms of to think about this complexity, and also as you mentioned the continuity between or the connection between the two uh, Chinese uh, regimes. So uh, with the uh, female defectors and earlier, uh, you will also mention about the South Korea as well. Some of them fly to South Korea first because now their uh, fuel for the uh, their airplane, their jet is limited. So they go to South Korea and then also later on uh, to Taiwan as well. So I think this is also important uh, dimension for this defection to be unfolded in the Cold War situation. So we also have the North Korea and also South Korea a division, and we have um, People's Republic of China and also Republic of China. That does, so, that does mm-hmm. really complicate it, if you'd like me to say more about that. Um, uh, and so as you mentioned, obviously, there's this is another one of these divided nations, North and South Korea. And... Just at the time, um, I mentioned this early defection in 1961, the plane that's flown to Korea. Um, It's actually a couple decades before another one of those happens, but it starts happening a lot in the 1980s. And it's exactly when the Republic of Korea government, or, or South Korea, is starting to try to figure out how to um, create diplomatic relations with with the PRC. And so it does become another very interesting and very sticky part of the story um, where 
you know, case after case of these defectors flying to South Korea. Um, the, the the first thing to mention is simply how how terrifying it seems to have been in a couple of these cases in particular, where these these pilots are flying from North China. They're flying MIGs, uh, the either the Soviet built MIGs or the Chinese built MIG fighter copies which happen to be the same planes that are flown by the North Korean Air Force. And so on the radar, what, what the South Korean military is seeing is that a MiG is headed their way. And um, air raid sirens are going off, and it becomes this, this incredibly disruptive um, kind of event that's happening far too many times in the early to mid-1980s. And one time there's even a Korean farmer who's killed when one of these planes crashes in his village and, and kills kills this farmer. Um, so there's that disruption of it. And like I said, there's also the fact of the, the South Korean government hoping to, to try to put together some kind of diplomatic relations with the PRC. And then so every time this happens, they're stuck between their anti-communist ally in Taiwan or the ROC asking for the defector, asking for the plane. And then the PRC, who's who they would like to start to build relations with, again, asking for that defector back, asking for the plane back. And so what the South Koreans will, will almost always do is split the difference. And they, what they'll say is that for humanitarian reasons, um, because they're an anti-communist government and because they want to support human rights, and that's a very important discourse by the early to mid-80s, they'll support sending the pilot to Taiwan in accordance with their wishes. Um, but they'll also send the plane back to the PRC. Um, so that ends up being the way that they, like I said, split that difference. But it, I think it is important to realize how... Um, again, disruptive and stressful that became for South Korea to be. It's, it's complicated enough between South Korea and North Korea to deal with one Cold War kind of divided nation problem. But now they're also in the middle of this Taiwan-China problem as well. Yeah, and then um, especially uh, you mentioned this um this decision has to be made, right? To uh, continue their anti-communist uh, stance. That's why, and also the human human rights humanitarian concerns. So they um, they have the defectors to Taiwan, but at the same time, also have another pressure from the People's Republic of China, and that's why they return uh, the flight. And um, I guess one thing that you mentioned also for me is the. Uh, stressful uh, situation for the border. And this border is not just cross-strait, but because this defection by air, some of the pilots go to South Korea. And then you mentioned that uh, for the radars, and then uh, there's also some uh, security issues uh, for the uh, borders as well. And I believe for the pilots themselves, they might be also very uh, stressed as well because they might be uh, uh, more or less uh, misrecognized as a plane from the North Korea. So it's all stressful situation for uh, all the party involved and also very delicate um, situation that South Korea 
um, government need to navigate in the 80s, in the Cold War, and also the uh, the with the two Chinese uh, regimes. That's right. So uh, with that, and um, I want to also think a little bit more about the reaction. So earlier, you actually mentioned a lot about how the nationalist uh, government, they respond to the defection, they use them for publicity, for propaganda purposes. And also, um, you mentioned some of their life after defection, whether there are still some mistrust. So I was wondering, can you talk about the People's Republic China, their response after these defectors, they uh, left China and eventually ended up in Taiwan. And then they see this publicity or the celebration of them as anti-communist regime. Does the Chinese Communist Party, they how do they respond and how do they understand this uh, defection? Um, these are all early enough. I think if we look at the 60s, 70s, 80s, they're early enough in history that it's possible to essentially pretend these aren't happening. Um, I think at some point, maybe by the late 80s, 90s, it would have been much harder to do that. Uh, but I think the main thing is simply to say that in these cases, there there would just be very, very, very little to no public uh discussion of this incident. And if it did come up publicly, it would simply be to say something like a plane was lost and just to leave it at that. Um, and so there would be very, very little public discussion or public awareness in the PRC in general that this is happening. Uh, but I think what is interesting is that the pilots all would hear about it. Um, they'd hear about it via security measures that are being put into place on their air base. Um, they would hear about it as they were maybe rotated around from base to base, discussing amongst themselves. But most importantly, through the ROC broadcast that, that many of them seem to have listened to on transistor radios. And so if there was any awareness in the PRC, um, really at all beyond just probably a very elite kind of party leadership or military leadership, it would have been via uh, these military or government broadcasts from Taiwan and from Taiwan-held islands um, into China. Um, and so uh, the pilots by the 70s, they all talk about listening to um, Free China, uh, you know, Radio Free China, essentially uh, broadcasts into the mainland where they would again hear about previous defections, where they learned about the rewards that they could get by flying to Taiwan, where they learned about uh, the signals to give if you are going to defect to Taiwan, when you're going to defect to Taiwan, this is how you do it. Make sure to you know, waggle your wings to show your you know, friendly intentions. You put down your landing gear as a, as a signal that you're... Um, a friendly craft and you're intending to defect and not to attack. Um, and so there is a knowledge, but I think it's, it's pretty limited to the people that listen to those broadcasts. And, and I think especially it seems to be that the case of the pilots would all be pretty clear about this. And I think <laughs> to take this to one extreme, um, 
in terms of pilots kind of learning from previous examples, there is one case in the 80s where well, there's one of these defections and one of the pilots who is sent to try to chase down that defector later gets the idea himself, heck, I'll just do it too, and essentially takes that same route to defect himself. Maybe I think it's the next year. Yeah, this is a a, a secret as if uh, in the uh, 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 in the uh, leadership, and but you mentioned that because of some of the radio and things like that, so the pilots might also have some knowledge uh, to um, about the reward system and also some of the instruction that if you plan to do this, how do you uh, do it to uh, defect to Taiwan? That's so, right. The, um, and, and just mm-hmm. to, to say that um, this broadcasting enterprise was was massive um, on the ROC side, where they had broadcasting in eight different Chinese languages beamed towards the mainland um, really most of the day, uh, trying to, again, spread ROC-centered, you know, nationalist-centered propaganda. And so, like I said, the, the pilots almost universally talked about that as... Um, what really piqued their curiosity about Taiwan and made them um, uh, d- just desirous of, of getting to this, what seemed like this rich, free China. As represented in the radio, but uh, which might not necessarily, um, <laughs> that's the case in the quote-unquote free uh, China. So, um, so, um, um, so I want to talk about the, what happened after the defect. But before that, I'm also interested in whether the defector's family, uh, they know that their family member defected. Earlier, you mentioned there is a wife, of course, know the husband defect and marry another woman. But um, what happened to the defector's family? And were they... Um, persecuted by the Chinese states, or did any of the defectors uh, ever visit their family or reunite with their family later on? Those are a couple of really good questions. Again, I would have to say that some of this just isn't, um, I think, isn't very available publicly. And so part of what you have to do, I think what, what you can find are some hints here and there about what happened to the families. I think we also have to just kind of extrapolate knowing what we know about what happened, say, during the Cultural Revolution to people who had relatives in Taiwan, relatives who had been part of the Nationalist Party um, structure, relatives uh, in the West, relatives in Hong Kong, etc. Knowing what we definitely do know about that, I think we should be able to extrapolate pretty easily and imagine that this was not easy on these families. In terms of exact records of that, like I said, I don't have a lot of data about that other than some mentions here and there. Just I remember seeing things about how certain family members, if if they weren't explicitly maybe you know brutalized or, or or jailed or something, they would be, you know, ostracized, kept out of of desirable work assignments. Um, kind of made an example of in that way. So I think uh, 
again, it's something I wish I knew more about. And it's something I hoped to to figure out as I went into the the study, but ultimately wasn't able to find out too much about. Um, there are cases of people who went back, and there are two in particular that are really important to get to the second part of your question. Um, before I get into those two stories, I would mention that it's what it's what also makes this group. Um, and their position so interesting, especially the ones who came in the 1980s, one gets the sense that they saw themselves as pretty much stuck in Taiwan. They were they were flying to a China that was, to again, a free China that existed in these broadcasts. But often what they found when they got to Taiwan in the 1980s was not free China, but a a... Taiwan that was becoming free and where the politics and society was much different than perhaps what was being discussed over these very official broadcasts. Um, so of this group, one gets the sense that there are a lot of them that probably wish they had just stayed or wish they could go, but they knew they'd be in trouble if they went back. Um, there are only two that I'm aware of that did go back. One was one of these unwilling ones, um, the Taiwan who had been part of a 1965 defection, who had not been willing. Um, and so he, he like the, the, the figure I mentioned earlier, just kind of bided his time. He went along with the celebrations, tried to pretend that he was an enthusiastic, you know, anti-communist, righteous warrior. But after, I think, 11 years in Taiwan, he was able to move to the U.S. And then from the U.S., he figured out after a couple of years it was safe to go back to China if he could make his case truthfully that he hadn't been part of that. He hadn't willingly been a part of that defection. Um, so Li Taiwang does make it back to um, to China. One imagines that there was probably some pretty extensive interrogation that went on, but it seems like he, does, he did make it back um, to China. The other person who went back less successfully was the person who led that defection, Li Xianbin, um, who was the pilot who actually, um, there were three on the crew. And so he, he flew this plane and brought two unwilling defectors to Taiwan. One of them died in, um, actually on the, on the runway, the plane crashed on the runway uh, in Taiwan and one of these unwilling defectors actually shot himself once he realized what was happening, once he realized that he would be um, you know, celebrated as a, as a defector in Taiwan, but obviously punished as a traitor and his family punished, most likely, in 1965 as, you know, for him being a traitor. Um, so he actually shoots himself. Um, but Lee had gotten cocky uh, in the early 90s and tried to uh, go home and visit his mother and he was actually allowed to visit his mother and he had visited several family family members for several days but when he was getting on an airplane after spending several days in northern china then he was arrested and he was held till almost the rest of his life he became he was given 15 year sentence served about eight years and he was he was let out because he was very sick um, so I think after that point, these other defectors realized that wasn't 
going to be possible to go back. There were still a lot of hard feelings about them having betrayed their government. And so traitor is definitely the word. If you look online and look about the look at the discussions that take place today, um, there's not a lot of interest on the Taiwan side. Like I said, these these seem to have taken place in an era that was so long ago from you know in terms of thinking about um, the politics and society in contemporary Taiwan. But there is a lot of interest on the PRC side, and that interest is mainly phrased in terms of here are the traitors, here are their pictures, here's how they were celebrated in Taiwan. And sometimes even something like, when we get Taiwan, we'll get them too. Yeah, and then, um, so thinking about their uh, experience after defection, and uh, especially I want to highlight what you say, that the so-called free China, after they arrive, it's not necessarily the freedom that they uh, imagine or they would like to enjoy, but it's at that time, uh, 60s, 80s, martial law period, and Taiwan was just starting to gradually, as you mentioned, becoming free. But not yet so much uh, in to the extent that uh, the island enjoy today. Well, what I would say is that um, mm-hmm. part of that, that transition is the growing freedom is a kind of freedom to discuss Taiwanese politics and kind of a Taiwanese-centered vision of, of the island or of the ROC. And that's just not what um, these pilots had counted on. They, they thought they were going to a different China. But um, again, one of the cases I try to make is that you know throughout the 80s, this is becoming much less free China with a capital F, and a actually a more free Taiwan with a lowercase f, where there's actual freedom, especially by the very late 80s, early 90s, um, actual political freedoms, but they're just of a very different sort than these pilots would have ever imagined. Um, you know, on their military base, say, in the, in the mid-80s. Yeah, and then thank you for adding this, and especially, um, you know, the, the term free China, both term free and China are constantly being redefined in the different uh, historical moment uh, in Taiwan as well. And also, you mentioned this kind of like a rising local consciousness and also different political landscape uh, in Taiwan. And um, so with that, um, I guess I'm curious uh, to hear more about uh, the defectors after they arrive in the nationalist control Taiwan. And do they really got the reward they are promised uh, to uh, be given? And especially, you mentioned this case back in the 90s, the, uh, uh, the heroes, they later on actually become committed uh, murderer. So how does that happen in the uh, land of what they imagine to be the free China? The rewards that, that you're talking about were a huge part of the story. Um, at some point, these are becoming truly massive amounts of money into the millions of, of U.S. dollars that they're rewarded. Um, there's there's a scale that the government sets, and this is part of propaganda flyers that are sent there for to, to China, dropped all over China in the also in the in millions of copies um, for many 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 years. And the newer the plane, the more money you get. Um, so. Uh, 
they would get these rewards. They were presented these uh, in in the public presentations. They were always presented with this platter, extremely heavy platter of gold bars. Um, they wouldn't actually be given the gold bars, but they'd be giving a, a, a cash equivalent of of that amount. Um, I found that the government was always taking about a 20% discount <laughs> off of the the gold rates. And it's something that um, Lee Shambian, one of the defectors who I was just talking about, actually starts complaining about. Um, how come you ripped me off when you gave me the certain number, the certain amount of gold? It should have been worth this much. How come the you, you cited this this exchange rate or this 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 value for for gold, you know, per ounce at that time. Um, another interesting th- uh, in- interesting part of it is that when the pilots would fly to Korea, and like I said earlier, the planes actually would be sent back to to China. The government would still give those pilots the money uh, in order to encourage more of these defections, even though they weren't getting the airplanes. Um, and I think that also kind of proves that it was not really the planes that they were after it in most of these occasions. Um, most of the planes that they were flying were, were these older MIGs that were pretty well, well known, well, well understood. It wasn't very often that they really needed to get a lot of insight um, from these planes, but obviously the main value of these defectors was of, of the publicity. So they were still given the full price. That does become something, in, as you went on in the '80s, that started to become more debated. And again, it just it just indicated where this where Taiwan was headed. Just more public discussion and questioning of this practice. Um, in terms of the the two of these hijackers that become involved in crime and eventually murder and eventually are executed by the government. One of their complaints was actually that they didn't get the same kind of reward that the military pilots got, um, because again, the military pilots were bringing over, uh, you know, PLA Air Force jets or PLA Navy Air Force jets, and they were on this table, and so they, there was a certain amount of money that they were rewarded. Um, these hijackers had had hijacked a a civil aircraft. Um, to Korea, and that aircraft was sent back. But um, that wasn't on the schedule anywhere in terms of how much money you'd be given. And so they were actually given an amount that was much, much less than these military pilots, even though that amount was still enough to be bothering people. Um, in 1984, when they make it back to Taiwan, they they, they get to Korea in 1983, they're imprisoned for about 16 months in South Korea for the crime of hijacking. Um, but then during the Olympics in 1984, when there's a lot happening, um, the government decides to let them go uh, free to Taiwan. And so in Taiwan, um, they're not given one of those massive rewards. They are given um, stipends by the government. They're given jobs, um, access to education. And it's both enough to really be annoying people in Taiwan who feel like, why are we giving money to criminals? <laughs> but it's also uh, little enough to really offend these hijackers who see themselves as just 
equal heroes as these military pilots. And um, Joel, in particular, the, the ringleader, seemed to always resent this, that he wasn't given the same kind of treatment. And one can probably draw a straight line between that and eventually this case where um, there are three of these men, and they're in fact all defectors. One of them was a defector who had come by boat. Um, but the three of them decide to to kidnap the son of um, a big-time hospital administrator, hold him for ransom, and then for some reason kill uh, this uh, this prisoner. And they're they're found out about uh, for doing that. But it's like I said, it he, um, Jewel talked enough about his resentment for not being recognized and rewarded enough that one might even be able to draw that line. Uh, between those those two events. Yeah, and then I believe this is uh, also uh, related to as what you analyzed in the book at the end of this Russia's uh, mythology in Taiwan as Taiwan is moving on to the 90s and then 2000 and contemporary as well. And then uh, how this defection is being understood or sometimes currently not receiving uh, too much attention um, in the cultural discourse uh, in Taiwan as well. So this kind of ending of that and also the end of the uh, nationalist regime, the martial law. So in around 80s, it's a very uh, transitional moment in the history of Taiwan. Yes, the, the timing of this really is perfect, I think, in terms of... Um really indicating when this whole very central ideology just died and just meant nothing. Um, it's not as easy as saying it's, it was one event that made this happen. Um, but it is simply to say that by the, by the mid to late 1980s, it was becoming pop, uh, possible to question this whole practice of rewarding these defectors and making them these great stars, giving them all these, um, all these benefits and making an example out of them um, when there were so many more important things to worry about in Taiwan, environmental problems, problems of the constitution, um, problems of the national assembly, and the fact that um, Taiwan representatives in the national assembly were, were represented such a, a tiny part of that, of that, uh, of that body. Um, there are so many more important things to, to be looking at. And so by 1986, 1987, news coverage of, of these was really fading away. Um, in 1989, um, the last of these defections by um, Zhang Wenhao um, is, is mocked very effectively by Taiwan independence people, uh, by the DPP. And to, to make a long story short, they just put it very very simply, which is um, there are all these Taiwanese people who are on what's called the blacklist, um, who can't come back to Taiwan because of their involvement in Taiwan independence politics, um, usually in Japan or in the West, who are simply not even allowed to, to come back to Taiwan, while at the same time, a Chinese trader is given millions of dollars for flying his plane over. Um, and it's mocked to such great effect 
um, especially, uh, again, this 1989 case by uh, a dissident named Stella Chen, who had actually snuck back into Taiwan using a disguise and a fake passport. And she puts together this whole um, great kind of theater um, demonstration at Jiang's press conference and then out in the streets where they so thoroughly mock this practice that it you can almost kind of imagine it it just died that day um, and then when Li Dunghui takes power um, and he's elected president it, uh, in 19 he's elected in 1990 and then in 1991 um, he ends this practice of rewarding the defectors and it just um, the practice and the ideology just fizzle out so quietly for something that less than a decade earlier had been huge and such a central part of of Taiwanese culture and media and and politics. Yeah, so this kind of like end, as you mentioned, this kind of central ideology to underpin the nationalist regime in Taiwan, and this also their self-claimed uh, Chinese orthodox uh, sovereignty as well. And uh, so with that came to an end uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. So... Um, I know your book is about um, the defection from China to Taiwan, um, but uh, I was just curious about whether uh, you can share or whether during your research you encounter any cases that is actually defect from the ROC to uh, PRC. This is really important. I'm, I'm glad you're mentioning this. It's, it's something that I had actually planned on spending more time on, and eventually for reasons of space, in the book, um, mainly I decided uh, to minimize in terms of uh, this study. But there is definitely a an equally fascinating history that you could find of the defectors who went the other way, because um, it's it's important to note here there were more defectors who flew. If we look at these pilot defectors, there were more of them who went from Taiwan to the PRC then came from the PRC to Taiwan. Most of those happened in the 50s. Um, there were just a handful um, that took place in the 80s, and they were, uh, and I think the same is true as what, what I was saying earlier, they were not talked about that much in Taiwan, but they were celebrated in China. Um, and so, again, for this study, it just became something that I wasn't going to be able to cover um, very effectively. But I would love to see, um, again, this kind of mirror image study come out and to, to try to figure out what are the sets of, of, of ideas um, that, that brought people to, you know, from Taiwan to China at these different moments. In the 1950s, it's pretty easy to understand that these were people, like I said earlier, who were in the military. They thought they'd be in Taiwan for a short time, but it's 1955, it's 1956. They've already, they've already been there, you know, um, for six years or something. And it's, it's weird to them. And, um, you know, half the Taiwanese people still speak Japanese and the culture is different. It sure doesn't feel like free China to them. It doesn't feel like China. It doesn't feel free. Um, it's very easy to understand some of those pilots making that choice uh, that they made. My, my favorite story, just to, to give one of them, is the person who 
um, worked at an airport and saw Chiang Kai-shek's son's Cessna there and flew it back to China and snuck out into it, um, took off, and on the radio said, um, my name is so-and-so, I forget his name right now, my name is so-and-so, but I am defecting, or I, you know, I'm, I'm flying back to China, so take that, Chiang Kai-shek. Um, so I think, again, it gets to that story of, of these competing regimes and um, definitely in the 50s there was there was still the sense of there being two chinas and which one was going to be the more authentic china and even into the 80s and this is no longer people who had come from china to taiwan but it's it's a second generation and they still believe um in that uh the idea that china is their true homeland they've heard enough about about the real china from their parents um that there's this new wave in the 1980s of, of, of a, few, a few pilots that do the same thing. Yeah, and then especially you mentioned the 1950s, you know, the nationalist government and also the Chinese patriots, they arrived to the island in uh, 1949, and then, but I believe they just become very aware, beatily aware that the historical experience of the islander and also the cultural memory between islander and the mainlander are very different. And then um, so also the language uh, usage and then the language uh, aspect uh, as well. So uh, yeah, so uh, I'm glad that um, uh, toward the end, we can uh, mention that the, the traffic goes both way. Um, yeah, um, and then also, um, um, I'm also thinking about in the 70s and 80s, uh, there are some uh, writers, they not necessarily defect to uh, Republic of China, but they are leftist uh, leaning uh, writers, for example, uh, Guo Zongfen, and they uh, visit uh, China. They were students in the United States, and then they visit. They have the chance to uh, visit China, and I believe the uh, the singer Hou Dejian uh, in the eighties also uh, go back to uh, the People's Republic of China as well. So um, there's this um, kind. Uh, two-way traffic and then also especially you mentioned that um, what people understand and also how people imagine and how people envision life on the other side and that uh, drive their uh, action drive the decision to make this uh, defection or not that's right I think I think there is so much um, more that we need to learn about how people saw the other side and how, how way more complicated it is than simply, you know, communists versus nationalists, China versus Taiwan, that there was many layer, there were many layers of, um, you know, nostalgia and thinking about Chineseness and thinking about, uh, the, the power of China and how, you know, how, how badly the nationalist party when they had ruled China, how badly they wanted to make China into a world power. And so what it meant um, for the mainlanders in Taiwan to see that starting to really happen, say, in, in the 80s. Um, again, I think you're, you're right that there's there's a lot more that this kind of topic, um, hopefully 
hints at and maybe even opens up for for discussion. Hmm. And um, so uh, with that, um, so I was wondering, um, can you uh, share with us what you're working on right now or what your next project uh, after this great book uh, will be or anything you would like to add before we wrap up the interview? Well, thank you for asking about that. I have to admit that the next project is in its very early stages. So it's hard for me to be able to say too much about what I'm going to do with it, but I'm going to be studying um, a prison uprising that took place in Taiwan in 1970 at the Taiyuan prison in, in Taidong. And it's seen as one of the uh, important moments in the Taiwan independence struggle when prisoners and prison guards um, joined together to try to uh, actually uh, found an independent Taiwan with this uprising. But again, like I said, it's uh, it's something that's beginning more attention in Taiwan recently, and I hope to dig into it as well. But it's still pretty in, in the very early phases for me. But that already sounds very uh, amazing because the prisoner and prison guard, they uh, work together. Um, so already... Um, this sounds a great project and very important uh, project uh, in Taiwan history as well. So um, with that, I want to thank you, Andrew, again for being on the show today. I really enjoy our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to talk about this and I'm very grateful for the opportunity. And thank you, our audience, for listening to the end. And um, take good care and see you guys next time. Goodbye.